Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm here in person today with Wesley Morris, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning cultural critic and also the host of the excellent podcast Still Processing. We just kicked off a new season. Welcome, Wesley. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. I did all my genuflecting before we started taping, but I'm a <laughs> Wesley Morris super fan going back to your Grantland days when I really, really loved your uh, Do You Like Prince music? Podcast. Oh, the movies, yeah. Prince Movies uh, podcast. Yeah. It was, it's an inscrutable title, so that's why I screwed it up. It's fair. It's fair. Blame Alex Papadimus, uh, who I love. To blame him for nothing, actually. He's perfect. Thank you. You're trying to make me cry yeah. out of the gate, basically. Yeah, I, I, I felt em, I felt emotional <laughs> when you when that thing split up and when you stopped making that podcast. I felt like you were making that podcast for me. Oh, that's nice. Which is a podcast phenomenon. You feel very intimate with the people you listen to all the time. And you made a thing that tickled my brain. That is not your day job, though. Your day job is writing stuff. But I, I, um, I do want to talk to you about the podcast because that has just kicked sure, off. Sure, sure. What's the best way to describe what still processing is? I don't know. I was just thinking about this when we had to cut a trailer for the show. And um, I didn't like what I originally said. And I thought, what is a better way? What is a better way? What is it that Jenna and I do whenever we talk to each other? That's Jenna Wortham, your yes, co-host? Jenna Normally Wortham. your co-host. She's yes. not on this season. She's away writing a book. Um, she'll be back. But I was just thinking about what, you know, people frequently ask in the building, how do we, what do, what do, how do we, how do we, we describe the show? Because we have to put out show? a press release or a Something. tagline yeah, that yeah, describes yeah. this thing. Um, and I realized in thinking about what I think the show is that what we're doing every week is trying to just figure stuff out. It's not terribly descriptive, but it actually is true. I mean, you can say we're two people who like to talk about popular culture. It's, but I mean, yes, it's true, but it's a chat show. We're not doing recaps. Not, yeah. You know, we really want to know why something is bothering us. Like just this morning, I was thinking, I got to text Jenna because I think there's there's a thing about Elon Musk. There's a thing about Elon Musk that we actually aren't talking about. And we don't. Will we ever talk about the fact? I mean, I don't know how we talk about Elon Musk's like personality and how, you know, the sort of randomness of his personality like, should he be running? Should he be running Twitter? Like, is that a good idea for for? I mean, forget business. Is it a good cultural idea? And what are we? What are we? What are we not talking about when we're talking about this this allegedly crazy story that actually is deeper than something quote crazy unquote? It's it's about a lot of things, and that would be the sort of thing yeah. that Jen and I would sit with each other for you know, an hour and talk about. But you guys generally aren't doing sort of news peg stuff, right? This is something you sort of sit um, with for a while. Yeah. And... I don't know what we, I mean, that's a great, um, are you editing our show? Because uh, I, I feel like that's a great way to think about what a still processing episode would look like with respect to Elon Musk. Like, I think that the problem isn't going, I, I have never been a like a person who needs to jump on the news. You're not a fast twitch guy. 
know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like there's something that I want to work out because I really do think there's a service in thinking through something with the rest of the world. Like right? you did a piece on the slap, but you did it several days, a few days after yeah. the slap. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a good example. Although, you know, that was not something that I necessarily would have had the passion to do on the Friday after, right? Yeah. Um, I started writing that the night of. And, you know, it just took, you know, going through the process of getting it edited and, you know, me being the way I am about drafts and stuff. I mean, it just took 12 hours longer than it probably should have because that was my fault. But that is an occasion, that was an occasion where I felt like, so many people were asking me like what that was or so many people were telling me what they thought that yeah. was. And I was having conversations with different, so many different types of people in my life, so many different black people, so many different, you know, women. I just felt like and nobody had an answer. Like I didn't have an answer. Nobody or had there were a lot of different answers. Well, there's right. There's no one answer and we'll never get an answer for most of those things. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the human behavior is often there is no answer for why people do the things they do. There are like explanations that kind of get you close. But barring I don't know if I really want to put it this way, but like even if Will Smith sat down with Oprah, which I think he should do. Probably do a red table first. I think they should take the red. T they should like <laughs> they should sublease that table to Oprah Winfrey. I think that although Jada Pinkett Smith is a good business person, she she knows that <laughs> she should you she you are probably correct in that they should have that conversation. I think Mark Zuckerberg will want that conversation to yeah. happen. So well, I don't want to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, but <laughs> but I think that. Um, I think that I don't I don't know if he even really knows. If you sat him down happened. on the couch and he said this is why I did it, the, even if he said it doesn't mean that it's the answer. It's one of my actual I've been doing these interviews forever and it's one of my frustrations with these interviews is it's as close to the truth as we can get, but it's still dependent on what that person says out loud and what they think and then they may not even understand what they're doing. Yeah, I I mean, I'm not saying that Will Smith in this case, I'm not saying that Will Smith saying like explaining where he thinks he was in that moment wouldn't qualify as a as a cogent explanation. I just think that the entire event of that night, you know, that entire pocket of action is sort of beyond explanation, yeah. right? Because well, you, there started, was, you started that essay talking about the pandemic has broken all of us, and then you have an anecdote about a guy driving the wrong way down your which street. Which I'll never forget. Which I think about, I instantly understood what you're talking about because you see it all. You see people behaving weirdly all the time, and maybe they were doing it prior to the last few years. But right now, I go, that is crazy behavior that we didn't see yeah. two years ago, yeah. five years ago. Yeah. Now we see it all the time. Yep, yep. And I don't think you had to have had COVID to have the <laughs> have whatever uh, COVID fever is. A lot of people lost a lot of people during this period. People didn't get to mourn properly. There's a lot of just unprocessed grief unprocessed confusion and fear. I mean, I just feel like I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of anything that's happened in the last three years. I mean, because even if Will Smith speaks, Will Smith was just one part of this thing, right? There was just the the amazing 
historic pileup of black male achievement that happened in that stretch, right? And that had never happened at the Academy Awards This is on the show where you had P. (laughs) Diddy and Questlove and Chris Rock. And then Tyler Perry coming out to pay tribute to Sidney Poitier. You know, Wanda Sykes and Regina Hall are the hosts. You know, Sam Jackson is in the room. You know, it just is so many, you know, Lupita Nyong'o is there. There's just so many things happening in that room. In that room, I mean, I know, I mean, I don't know if it looked intimate to you, but it looked really, it looked cozy. In the, a way. the the those the tables at yes, the front, yeah, yes. that was that was what they were trying to pull off the year before in the right. train station. I kind of like that. I I appreciated the impulse, but mm. I, I did not enjoy the the event. I liked the I liked I liked that Oscars. But I hear you because it, it was it was awkward. There were some awkward things about it. But that opening shot of Regina King. That was great. That tracking shot. Woo. That was fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I take people at their word when they when they try to explain themselves. I'm just saying that there are some occasions where the thing that happened is bigger than any one person's side of the story. And that is Kind of what you're doing with the podcast, right? Yes. Is, is kicking all the stuff around. You've got the first episode is out now. I was listening to it last night. You're interviewing, is it Daphne Brooks? Is yeah, it? Dr. Daphne A. Brooks. Who I did not know before, but she's a professor of many things at Yale. And yeah. you guys were talking about pop culture and lists and who gets to make lists and what the canon is. At the end of it, she's crying. Yeah. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you don't normally have, unless it's a very specific kind of podcast, you don't normally have crying on these things. Um, yeah, I'm a crier. I think that I tend to bring out the – I mean, I don't tend to, but I think that, you know, Daphne found herself in a place that, that you know, was really deep for her. I mean, you know, Greg Tate, one of the country's great critics, just died. I mean, I was I – was, I had just had a conversation with him a couple months before his death, a few months before his death, and – it just was shocking for a lot of people. And Daphne and Greg were tight. Mm-hmm. And I think just thinking about like the idea that Greg would be a person who would have probably would have laughed at my question <laughs> about like whether lists. Well, I mean, I want to fight to just make the lists as as interesting and as non-classical, quote unquote, as they always tend to be um, and try to get the most interesting people on these lists or to like get more people to participate so that we know, you know, what else is canonizable. I don't want to step on your podcast. You should go listen to it if you yeah. haven't listened to it already. But I am curious. Did you guys talk about whether you wanted to have Daphne Brooks crying at the end of that episode? No. Did oh. she talk about that? Uh, That's a pretty intimate moment. She, I mean, she's not bawling or yeah. anything, right? I mean, I think that she was experiencing the loss of a person whose voice on this particular issue with respect to greatness and its recognition was important. But I also think that, you know, if people, I mean, we've recorded a few of these episodes already and I cry in the, in the second one, you know, I don't know how other people are going to feel when they experience the thing that makes me cry, but you know, I'm here for the tears. And I think anybody mm-hmm. who comes on the show I think is going to feel comfortable that we're going to is going to trust that we're going to take care of them yeah. and not make them look 
bad or unflattering. I mean, I think that everybody who hears Daphne cried understands what, what the tears are about, I think. So I we've, hope. we've kind of been circling around this, but I want to ask you about the writing you do at the Times. Mm-hmm. Is the, what's the title? Cultural Critic? Chief I'm critic? a... <laughs> the title... Critic in Charge? The Critic... Oh, I like Critic in Charge. I like that. I'm going to tell Amanda Hess, we're, we're now critics at charge. I'm a critic at large. What is, what is your remit? What 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 are you supposed to write about? What how do you decide what you want to write about? How do you decide what frequency you want to write about things? You do shortish stuff. You do long essays about your mustache and how it places <laughs> you in, in Black history and what it means in the moment of George Floyd's death. Uh, you got a lot of range. Yeah, I mean, I can. I mean, in theory, I, I there's there's not much I'm not allowed to write about. You know, I I like to have a bunch of things, a bunch of ideas uh, in the hopper. Is the hopper when you're finished or is the hopper is the hopper? I think of it as in process. Okay, so, yeah, I got a lot of things in the hopper. I try to keep it that way. It gets a little it can become a little overwhelming only because you want to be finished with things more faster than you than you actually can get them done. Some things that take, you know, some things you can write in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, some things you can write in. I wrote something yesterday, and it took me two hours and twenty and, and twelve minutes because that's all the time I had to do it. Um, that, that often works. A deadline. Yeah, I was. That was beautiful. It was like, am I going to get this done? Because um, I had to go do something anyway. So the 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 purview is is pretty pretty infinite. Um, the like you write of, movie reviews, but the Times has several people who do that for a, a living, write about movies. So how do you yes. figure out? I want to write about this J Lo movie, not you, Tony Scott. That well, that's not. Don't don't do that. <laughs> it's never not no. It Tony and Manola, A O Scott and Manola Dargis are the chief film critics of mm-hmm. the New York Times, and they don't review everything because there's ten thousand movies that open every week, and so they have a pool of freelancers that that contribute film reviews yep. and i you know i am essentially among the freelancers essentially because they get to choose you the raise films your they hand and say i'd like to review this movie right. starring the foo fighters as the foo fighters yes, which i did not yes, know existed yes 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 um i mean it's a little more complicated than that but but essentially like uh ao scott and manila dargis get to you know they sort of guide the the scope of the film coverage in terms of like what their interests are and then things they can't do um, or aren't interested in other people do. I mean, it's the only way to get the paper of record to like get all the movies review or like get as many movies reviewed as they possibly can. And I'm one of those people. Um, and so, that part, I like, you know, I miss I miss doing film reviews on a regular basis. And I like doing the ones that I do. For that's sort of what you came up doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I started. I started as a. I started as a film critic in high school. I think that was my first. Yeah, high school, 1990. First thing I. I think the first thing I reviewed for a newspaper, my high school newspaper, was Cape Fear. Um, <laughs> so I would have been 15. I don't think I've seen that more than twice. Maybe even just once in the theater. I've, I can quote it. Yeah. Well, you're a, you're a Scorsese. There's guy. another. There's another. I mean, that that movie is going to come up in this this season of the show too. All right. Um, I will look forward to that. Do you, <laughs> sometimes your writing doesn't have your doesn't doesn't you don't insert yourself into the writing, mm-hmm, but a mm-hmm. lot of times you do. Yes, um, which I like. Is it, was that ever a discussion within the Times? Because it's not Timesian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're a critic, you got a lot more leeway than if you're doing the straight news and other sure. stuff. But generally, they like, sort of people want to sort of 
I think of the Times like it's got a Times voice, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't need to hear about who your mom was or <laughs> any of that. Let's just get to it. Um, is that something you've had to push to get in, or no? no? I mean, I am lucky. I was hired at a time when th- that that attitude toward a voice of authority, a sort of blind. Um, not necessarily bland voice, uh, but a voice of authority. That voice um, is purely about the conveyance of expertise on a particular matter. Um, and the the author themselves, the authors themselves are not really crucial to that to that conveyance, right? But that then sort of assumes that like voice isn't important or like there's no voice that comes yeah. through in these in this writing. Um, and, you know, I mean, A.O. Scott and Manila Dargis have voices. You know, Roberta Holland, I can hear her when I read her. You know what I mean? Um, ben Brantley was somebody who you could just hear. Sure. You could hear a voice. But the introduction of a of a self, biographical self into criticism, I, that was never that's never been a problem for me at the paper. I think that other people sort of I mean, people inside, people who work at the Times, people who read the Times have talked to me about the surprise of not necessarily the you know, the quality of my writing, but like the fact that the writing that I do incorporates so much of myself and my feel it my you know, the explicit discussion of my feelings mm-hmm. and my life in in the pieces. But I also kind of, you know, not every piece needs to do that. And I like um, being able to, to play with the module on that, you know, to toggle that back and forth. Yeah. You know, to know how much I mean, you know, writing in the first person is one thing, but like using a movie or a piece of music or a book to think about your family or your upbringing or your sexuality or your body, that's a different thing. And, you know, the pieces kind of tell me what to do. You you won your Pulitzer for writing about, that was intensely personal stuff, I think. My mustache myself. That yeah. was the big one everyone yeah. pointed out. But but it was stuff you were writing summer of 2021, right? Yeah, the, the second Pulitzer was for the stuff that happened in that, like, <laughs> just the summer, yeah. the summer, the summer. And, but, you know, the, to your question about the, the, the question about writing in the first person and the voice, I was, I really, really didn't want to spend the whole summer being, I, I knew that I was probably going to, I knew after summer 2020, it was, it was the yes, George Floyd yes. first pandemic summer. Yes. The, the, the summer yeah. when all the shit was hitting all the fans. I knew that I didn't want to write – if I was going to keep writing thinking about what was happening, I was going to – I wanted to like make a case for something because I felt like I was doing a lot of emoting um, and not – I mean not that, not that that was all those pieces were doing were like emoting. But um, I wanted to try to make an argument for something like, that was that – was, that would have been – in some way, salubrious to the moment. Um, and so I tried to, I wanted to sort of write something and it didn't involve me, right? It didn't involve my life, my feelings, anything. It just was like saying, here's a thing that would be useful to happen right now. And 
I'm just going to very meticulously try to be meticulous in laying out a case for why it should happen and what it could look like. And that was basically arguing for some sort of tel- some sort of televised truth and reconciliation uh, commission. Did you feel like at the time that you were doing that writing that, one, you were meeting the moment and, two, that you were doing really good, really important work? Or did it just feel like – I mean I remember a lot of frustration – for myself and people I was working with, like, mm-hmm. what what are we doing here? Should mm-hmm. we even be typing stuff? Does that make <laughs> any sense? It mm-hmm. kind of seems pointless. We should only be talking about this stuff because that's all that matters. Actually, we should move away from that because people are consumed with that and they want to, they want something else other than strife and death. And, yeah. and we should yeah. go the other way. Give them entertainment. Where did you calm down? I was mostly just curled in a fetal position. <laughs> I worked on – I was – I definitely – there was an issue where I was working on a podcast series about Netflix mm, mm-hmm. in the spring of 2020 that it had to get done. But there was a discussion here about should we be doing this? Like because you – that the world is burning and you should write about that. And yeah, yeah. We kind of did both. Yeah. It worked out in the end. Yeah. I and mean, by the time the thing was done, it came out in the summer of 2020 and people did respond to it. They did want to consume it. We yeah. talked about a little bit of what was going on, but it was mostly out of that environment. I remember that. I mean, I feel like – I don't feel – I mean, one of the things about like people who just kept going forward was that there was still – there was still a part of everybody that wanted to to live – wanted things to go back to quote normal, knowing that that wasn't possible given where we were. Whatever normal was, we were bringing that forward and normal is is like, bye. (laughs) Nice knowing y'all. I might not ever see you again. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, because, you know, during before before the pandemic started, I was in the middle of doing a big erotic thrillers thing. Right. I was like convinced that the movies needed to bring erotic thrillers back. I'm still convinced about that. But, you know, I never I never finished it. And lo and behold, we're now in this moment where and I'm kind of glad that this happened because I was actually let me just back up. I, the, I, I tabled that because I didn't I had the same sort of like, what should we be doing crisis um, that you had? I mean, I, I was. I knew what to do, and I knew the thing that I didn't want to be doing is writing about Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. But um, I also was aware that of the fact that um, my feelings about erotic thrillers hadn't changed because of the, all this craziness, right? Like I just had made room to deal with all the stuff that was happening around us. But I still think this genre of movies, it can't come back. It can't come back because – We've changed and the we're things not, we're not getting another basic instinct. No, because we well, first of all, we could never have another basic instinct because that movie would never even get yes. made now, right? Um or a nine and a half, any Adrian line. He just came out with one that I don't think anyone saw. Deep water. I think people watched it. It yes. just they just didn't want to say that they watched it. <laughs> um and I think, you know, now we're in this moment where there are like really interesting, smart people like talking about where the hell are the erotic thrillers? Why don't we have these movies anymore? Like, and they're all like women identified people, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is really important because when I was working on my thing, I did have a moment where I'm like, but I'm a dude and I would actually like to know what other people think about it. So that has happened and I'm just relieved that we're all on the same page about these movies. Like Karina Longworth has dedicated, is going to dedicate 24 episodes of her show, You Must Remember This, to mm. 
to like she's what she's calling the erotic 80s and 90s. All right. God bless her. The first I've heard the third first two episodes, I think. And it's like she's going to spend the whole show doing this or the whole you know series doing this. Great. But that was the thing where I was like, I think I should go back to this because I still care. I still feel that way. And, um, you know, I think there's there was there is room for these reckonings, but also for these. I mean, for these sort of large social reckonings with respect to, you know, what this country is and how it works. But there's also these other reckonings about things we used to have that we don't have anymore that we miss. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. This I feel like we've had a recurring conversation about this since Trump, mm-hmm. about art and popular culture, culture commenting directly, reflecting on what is going on, being explicit about I'm making this thing. It is about the Trump era. It is about the pandemic. Um, it is about George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and how we don't see much of it. There are examples of it. And John Apatow just made a not good movie about the pandemic. A I'm, bummer. I'm not saying anything about that. He is a hero <laughs> of mine, and I was very disappointed in that movie. Uh, but there's not much of it. And do you think that's because people don't want to make that stuff, or do they think the audience doesn't actually want that stuff? I think it's too soon. Like, nobody – I mean, I actually think that for all of the bandwidth, the, like, sort of actual – I don't even know what we – like, the, the, the space on platforms for his stuff – I don't – there aren't enough – like, I there's mean – There's plenty of room for stuff. Yes, but there's not plenty of room for – I mean, like, all that stuff can't be interesting or good. That's different. Or insightful or deep or moving or funny. Like, it can't – like, there just isn't enough room. There aren't enough smart people, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. that's a different question. That's just talking about the slew of stuff that's out there, period, yes, and but, how most of it's not good. But I think that in – but in that, though, I think that – there is a there's a degree to which only a small percentage of the people who could do anything well would want to do something about this moment well. And I think that the, one of the problems is it only works if you kind of think of it as either you either treat it as a matter of fact where you sort of put the people in the moment the way that CBS shows, for instance, you know, all those all those CBS shows put up plexiglass in the courtrooms and had the characters wear masks and, you know, um, talk about testing and vaccination. Mm-hmm. And nobody is watching Bull for that. But Bull was doing it. And so that that's one way. But the other way is a trick of art, which is called allegory, <laughs> you know, parable. And I think that You'll notice that like so, so many shows just skip past the pandemic. They follow the protocols. They make their thing as though the pandemic doesn't exist. You do what Sex in the Cities reboot did, which is basically be like, oh, that thing from five years ago or five months ago or whenever, whatever the distance is Mm -hmm. between the pandemic and and the show. I have been thinking a lot about the ways in which the the stuff that was happening. I'm writing a lot about the 80s this year, I think, Um, kind of by accident, but maybe on purpose. 
uh, or I will be more than I currently have been. But I think one of the things I'm realizing, though, is that there were no um, they weren't trying to be topical about anything. Explicitly, were, I felt like. Right. But it wasn't. But the, the, the shit just winds up in there anyway. Do you know what I mean? I guess. I mean, it seemed like, <laughs> and there know, was no pandemic. And right? I was, yeah, I was. You know, I was consu- there was AIDS. I, I was definitely consuming. Co- yeah, that was definitely not in there. Right. I was, but it, but it wasn't not right. This is the thing about erotic thrillers, right? The danger, the sexual paranoia, was rerouted away from you know the gay men and black people who suffered. You know, white the most people, of the can, hands. White, white straight people can get in trouble having sex too. Yes, your body but, will get boiled. I do think that I mean that is I mean I'm not saying you're being reductive in 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 that's what, in I what do. you're <laughs> but but I do think that if we're talking about the way art can serve as a stand-in for something right that's what it was a stand-in for right I mean the even the judgment in something like Fatal Attraction is a stand-in for the judgment happening inside the gay community and certainly outside of it against people who both got AIDS and were having sex at all. I also think that when we say, oh, it's not like the 60s or the 70s when pop artists were you know, commenting on the war, and they were, and they're not now at all, right, for right, the most right, part. Right. But there was tons of culture there that was totally out of the moment, that, that had no reflection on Vietnam or hippies. And you, you know, other than haircuts, you wouldn't know that it was made then. Right. But I also, th- I mean, I don't know, though. The 70s were a mood, right? Like, you can, you can look at Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and be like, Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is this such a why is this such a bummer? And why is why is Willy Wonka such an asshole, right? Creepy, right? Willy Wonka's Nixon, right? I mean, I feel like there's a way that that the vibe of that era just like managed to seep into every single movie whether it was What's Up Doc or Coming Home. Yeah. It didn't matter. Like the 70s, the the vibe of that era was just going to be in everything. So you're not a fast twitch writer and reactor and podcaster, but in terms of the culture you're consuming, do you make a point of saying, I want to see what the young people are making and I'm going to spend time watching 90 minute, 90 second TikToks? Or is that not your speed either? No, <laughs> it's not. I feel like, you know, there are a couple things that I don't feel compelled to do that either. I mean, I'm not curious about it, but I do, you know, Jenna Wortham, God love her. She is determined. She's not determined to get me to do anything, but like she she shares with me TikToks that mm-hmm. she likes. I mean, you know, on the on the regular, like just so just, you're getting it. I get it, and sometimes I'll get them, and I'm just weeping with laughter because some of these people are geniuses, and it's not like I'm I would I'm never going to write about it. It's just not a world. I don't know what I'm looking for. It's like it's kind of like being at a consignment shop. Like you just are flipping through through racks, hoping that you, you find something. Do you that have fits. anxiety about being someone who was born what early seventies, mid seventies, nineteen seventy five, and and so you have a certain set of, of cultural associations and knowledge, and now at some point you're not getting the new stuff, or you're not getting the new stuff in the way that, that someone 20, 30 years younger than you would. Um, no, because when I was when I was twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, I was reading people who were in their in their 50s and 60s because I thought that they were smart and right about stuff. I was writing to work and not necessarily right. Like, you know, Jim Hoberman, I don't know how much older than than me Jay Hoberman is, but like... It's the famed Village he, Voice critic. Yes. He's Amy Tobin. I mean, they're older than I am. And I, 
I still read them because they still have things to offer me. And I don't need Amy, although I'm sure Amy has a lot of feelings about TikTok. <laughs> um, some good ones probably too. But I don't, the age thing only matters when you read old, right? And when your oldness doesn't have anything to offer anybody. I also don't want to be out here. I'm not, I don't want to be chasing things mm -hmm. too. I just want to be writing about what interests me. And, you know, there are plenty of people who, you know, post these Instagram videos and, and TikToks that I think are just, they're ingenious. So it's not, I don't, I don't feel like I'm missing out on something because there's so much happening in all of these other realms of the culture that, that are speaking to me in a way that feels somewhat adjacent to what's happening on TikTok. And the other version of that question is, we don't have a monoculture, we're well past that, mm -hmm. everything's really atomized. On the other hand, there's a whole set of culture that's built on, we're gonna react to the thing that the most people are engaged in right now explicitly for that reason. Yeah. You're at the New York Times, you get this huge platform. Do you want to explicitly be trying to reach a lot of people about something they know about, or do you wanna say, none of you know about this artist, and I want to champion them for this reason. And here's why you should care about them. Yes. I, I just I'm very interested in talking about people I like that people probably don't know. But I'm also fine talking about what I love about people that everybody knows or what I don't like about people that everybody knows. But I think that, you know, I wrote about this musician who I love named Barty Strange earlier this year. Um, and I was just like, I'm sh nobody knows who this guy is. <laughs> I mean, people know, but he's not a famous musician. Do you feel like but you are explicitly saying, I have this platform, I am going to, what was this person's name? Bartiz Strange. Bartiz Strange. I am going to make sure hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, whatever the number is, are now going to know about this person. And I'm going to be the person who shines that spotlight. I have that responsibility and power. No. <laughs> it's the only way I can do my job is to say no. The only times I think about the fact that I work at the New York Times when I'm doing something are when what I'm going to do is going to ruin somebody's day. Um, and even then sometimes, because I'm going to be fair about it, like I just know what it's like to hear that something you did didn't work. This is a bad movie, I'm going to say. Yeah, sure. Or like you did a bad thing you know, Jane Campion at the Critics' Choice Awards or whatever. Like, I mean, I don't I don't feel too bad about that. But I also think conversely that one of the values of writing for The New York Times in the way that I'm I'm writing about what I'm writing about is that it resonates with people and there's more of an opportunity. There's more of a, an, a, a chance that the odds are better that what I'm going to write is going to resonate with more people because I'm writing it at the New York Times than it would be if I were still at Grantland, for instance. Which, you know, I, I wish I were still at Grantland. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wish I would love to still be at Grantland. But I'm at the New York Times now, and I'm I'm loving my life. But um, I try not to think too much about, about the power of the paper, which might be naive, but I also think for me it's it's uh, it keeps me sane. Mm -hmm. I just am I'm truly following my heart taste, um, sense of morality. And that is the only way that that's the only way I can do my job. Otherwise I'm trying to be somebody else. And I spent the whole beginning of my career trying to be other people. If you started your career over, if you're 18 year old Wesley and you like movies and culture, but it's mm -hmm. 2022, mm -hmm. instead of going to writing for local regional newspapers and doing film criticism, well, actually, you tell me, what, what are you doing? Are you trying to do that same route or are you 
Are you making TikTok reaction videos? Are you probably, tweeting a lot? Probably. Probably. I mean, I don't know, but I actually don't know. I don't know what that would be like. I mean, I just know. I don't know that I would be. I think I would probably be good at Twitter if I were, if that was what I knew, you know, I'd be good at TikTok if that was what I knew. I mean, you look at some of these TikToks and you're just like, why have the studios called you? Mm -hmm. Have the studios knocked on your door? Because, and I mean, Saturday Night Live, I mean, I don't know who's in the writer's room right now, but I watch a show almost every week and I'm like, y'all need to go to TikTok because there are people on TikTok doing stuff that y'all wish you could do. <laughs> I, de- I mean, they definitely use Twitter as a writer room. Yeah, right? as, I mean, as a way to hire. I mean, I I think that at least to like cast people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are some real clever ass people on TikTok. I think that was the best thing. Maybe the only good thing about the Judd Apatow movies. He brought some TikTok people into. The yeah, movie. I mean, you know, he's got a gentle. I mean, he's he's big hearted, but yeah. he also is out of ideas. That's what um, it seemed like. But we can – that's discussion. a whole other conversation. But, I want to have many other conversations with you, but you got to go. Yeah. But, and I mean, I you can – I mean, I can stay – I mean, five minutes. I can – Give me five stay, minutes. Yeah. So, so you – I mean, do you, but do you think you'd be doing words? Do you – I don't know. I mean, I – I all I can tell you is that I wound up writing film reviews for a newspaper because that was the way to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, so I don't. I would imagine that if I were the exact same person, but but now, I don't know how much. I don't know. I mean, maybe I want to write. Maybe I would want to write. But maybe I would also understand that the the path the pathway to a writing job was probably is probably going to be being on Twitter or TikTok. And also, I probably just, that's my language. My 12-year-old is consumes almost exclusive, well, skateboard videos too, but also 10-minute um, uh, video essays about great movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, it's great because he gets exposed to a lot of stuff. On the other hand, like he's done no reading. Yeah. So that's his entire context is whatever this 10-minute video is. That's my 12-year-old nephew who's going to be with me all next week. Where are you going? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, he's coming to me, Okay, but I don't know what we're going to do. We'll figure it out. But I think that I don't know. I mean, listen, I think everybody should read. I wish people read more than they do. Um, I think it's really important to being a good writer. I also think it's really important to being a good steward of civilization. That said, I don't know if I were 18 now how much writing I would be doing. And and whether or not my my adventures in these other on these other other platforms would lead to a writing job. What was the uh, thing that clicked for you when you were young, saying, "Oh, I want to write, and I want to write about movies"? Somebody telling me that it was a job I could do. I mean, it was that somebody telling me that I was good at it. I got an assignment um, from a social studies teacher, Mr. Kazempel, and he was like, "You didn't do the assignment, but you did." You did perform a movie review, and that is a job. And I was like, I did a bad job at the thing you told me to do, but I did a good, bad job. And the job that I did is a job? I'll try it. And that, I mean, very very literal mind. I mean, as a kid, and I still am as an adult, like if you, it takes me a second to like go an extra step to hear what's actually being said to me. Um, But as a kid, I was like, okay, I guess that's my job. I kind of like, I kind of like writing. And even I can remember as in, in the eighth grade or the ninth grade, just being stressed out about, you know, writing. 
Um, and like whether or not the thing I was writing is going to like, am I going to finish in time? And am I going to hit my you mean for an count? assignment? Yeah. Or, yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for Miss Traub, we ran the school newspaper, um, which I think I started doing in the ninth grade. But, uh, you know, I think that it's just really important for people who want to write. And I, I you know, there are many young people who want to write. I want to be clear about that. Like I meet them all the time. I think if I were if I were one of the young people that I meet who wants to write, I would say, listen, write. <laughs> you know, I started writing. I got my Grantland job in a like it's complicated, but I mean, I would say that I was writing a, a, a blog about what clothes athletes were wearing. Yeah, for myself, and I say when I get to ten posts, I will publish this. And before I got to ten, I got to maybe like eight posts. And Alex Papadimus had told Dan Fearman, who was um, one of the, you know, the top editors. I don't mm-hmm. I never get executive senior editor right. I mean, he was a boss at Grantland. He was a boss at Grantland. Um, and then he told Bill and Bill was like, yeah, let's do it. And I had one of the greatest conversations of my life was standing in the foyer of 30th Street Station on my way to see my parents in 2000. 12 maybe um it would have had to, it would have had to have been 2012 talking to bill about troy aikman and eddie murphy and i was like this is the greatest day of my life and i didn't even know bill mm-hmm. i didn't even know bill but this i was is like, after you'd won a pulitzer right yes okay yes just for context yes and i just was like i love this person i want him in my life I don't know what this job is going to be like, but that the only reason that happened, the point of that story is just I had a I was writing, I was doing something that was new at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a new form of expression. Writing and, for yourself. Yes. And Alex told Dan, who told Bill, that I had this blog. I mean, you know, they could read my other writing, sure. but this was a very Grantland thing that nobody this what's what this is what would have been a very Grantland thing that nobody else was doing. And I mean, but it, I don't work at Grantland. I don't think. I mean, Alex might have tried to get me to like do some other stuff through Dan. Through if they, if you had just Bill. written Pulitzer Prize winning movie commentary, they would have said, eh, "Fine." I don't know, but I think there was I, the the story I tell myself, and I don't know. Maybe maybe Bill would be like, maybe Bill, Alex, and Dan would all be like, "No, you fucking idiot!" It's like you wrote this other stuff. Yeah, but I remember specifically. I remember specifically Alex being. Because um, Alex knew about the blog, I remember Alex being very sheepish about having told Dan about the blog when I told him that I didn't want anybody to read it because I only had eight of them, and I wanted Alex to know because I wanted to know if this was worth putting into the world. So, I mean, to that to the point of that story is just if you want to write, find a place to write where people can see it because anything can happen, and just be a little bit ambitious. Don't be. Don't like have the ambition to do something like take over your life. But I mean, if it's writing that you love, let let the writing kind of take over your life if that's the case. But I mean, just that's the part that makes me the most hopeful about the youths is yeah. that they can do that work wherever. They do not have to move to New York or L.A. or San no, Francisco. No. They probably will anyway. Yeah, uh, but they don't need reasons, to. They I'd could, much rather could... hear from people in, in, in like non-coastal places mm-hmm. that also aren't Chicago. You know what I mean? Like. I, I just feel like everybody should be speaking and 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 like looking at the culture in as smart and as like passionate and personal a way as possible. Wesley Morris, I really do got to go now. Um, <laughs> uh, I have been wanting to get you on this it, podcast. Forever. You have to go. Okay. I gotta go. Have to go. You gotta go. We got things to do. 
This is Rico Media. I'm delighted I get to do this show because I get to talk to people like Wesley Morris. I'm delighted Jelani gets to produce and edit this show. The advertisers bring us this show for free and that you guys listen and tell other people about it. This is Rico Media. We'll see you next week. <laughs>